Well, I mentioned as we continue on in our First Thessalonians series, I mentioned at the very beginning of the series that a primary theme is hope. That I really felt like God was leading me to teach this book at this time with that intent to bring us hope, to remind us of the hope that we have in Christ, the hope that we have in the Gospel uh, and I said at the, at the beginning, I, I kind of had this little phrase that I wanted to put out as something that I, I hope that you would grab onto. And it was this. It's that what you hope for shapes what you live for. What you hope for shapes what you live for. Uh, and again, so if, as, we, as we understand what it looks like and our great need to hope in Christ, uh, that it's not just an ethereal hope, but it becomes a very practical hope that every day drives our lives, that, that anchors our lives in Him and gives us not just a hope that is wishful thinking, but a hope that's concrete. A hope that you can actually you know, drop your anchor on and, and, and sink your life roots into. So this morning, I want to get back to that theme uh, in, in some very um, intentional ways. I've titled the message this morning, Real Hope is rooted in real truth. Real hope is rooted in real truth. And just by way of uh, sort of illustrating how what you hope for shapes what you live for, I want to share with you something that I heard from somebody recently that, that was really impactful. Uh, so a few weeks ago, Dave and Susie invited Christine and I out to dinner with a, another couple of some friends of theirs. And uh, the wife, her, her name was Michelle, shared with us that she... Uh, she's, she's got this ministry that she's helped start uh, where they go over to Uganda where there are so many children who've been orphaned by the AIDS epidemic over there and, and just wanted to show the love of Christ to them by providing some, some hope, some future for them. These kids are, are, again, they're without parents, oftentimes siblings together <clears throat> who will be placed into some kind of foster care or some kind of orphanage. And through this ministry, that Michelle started, uh, you can you can sponsor some of these kids. And by that sponsoring and the financial backing that you give, it provides for them not only the resources that they need for daily living now, but it but it provides for them the opportunity to go to school, uh, to get out, right? To get an education so they can t- continue on in their lives, which is unfortunately without that kind of help, so many of these orphans would end up with no opportunity. So as she's sharing with us this ministry, it was interesting that she said that some kids in a family will be sponsored and their siblings may not be sponsored. And the studies that they've done over the time as they've observed the result of the ministry showed that the kid who was sponsored, even though he's or she is living in the same environment as their siblings, they've got the same orphanage, the same foster family, the same day-to-day experiences, that in the long run, the sponsored child tends to do far better than those siblings who are not sponsored. Even in the present, there, there's, there's, there's a greater sense of health, overall health for these kids. And I asked her, well, why, why is that? And she said, it's hope. That child knows that they've got a future. They know that there's an education waiting for them. So even though their day-to-day experience is just like their siblings, without that same knowledge that they've got something to look forward to, their siblings are struggling in ways that they're not. 
And I thought that, see, that, that, that actually perfectly illustrates the point. What you hope for shapes what you live for. Your hope has a tremendous impact on your present reality. That said, what Paul wants to share with us this morning, and what I hope to convey to you well, is that our ultimate hope is the Word of God. That there's nothing that will shape us and nothing that will anchor us like God's Word. Because God's Word is the ultimate truth and the ultimate life-giving, sustaining reality that we could possibly have. So again, I've titled the message, Real Hope is Rooted in Real Truth. And I want us to understand that real hope is rooted in the Word of God. Here's the main idea this morning. Hope is rooted in God's Word, and this hope becomes certain. And by certain, I mean, again, not ethereal, not wishful thinking, but but you can bank on it. That hope becomes certain because God's Word bears powerful fruit in the lives of those who accept it. Hope is rooted in God's Word, and this hope becomes certain because God's Word bears powerful fruit in the lives of those who accept it. Now, if you were here last week, you recall that Andy highlighted the difference between objective and subjective truth in his sermon. Meaning that uh, by objective, there are certain things that are true that be, and they're, they're measurably so. They're verifiably true in and of themselves. They just are. That's what we mean by something that's objective. And then there's the way that we receive or interpret or experience truth. And that's what we mean by subjective. right? Remember him talking about that? Well, I'm going to continue on in that theme because that's what Paul is doing here. Paul is, is highlighting that difference between objective and subjective and, and talking about how we subjectively receive what is objectively true in the Word of God. So let's read verse 13 again. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And let's see how Paul talks about the Thessalonians subjectively receiving what is objectively true. He says, and we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is. The Word of God, which is at work in you believers. Here's the first point this morning. God's Word as taught by the apostles is objectively true. It's objectively true. I love how he says here in verse 13 that the Thessalonian church had accepted the teaching for what it really is. He really makes an emphasis to say, it. You, 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 you didn't just receive it, but you, you received it for what it really is. It really is the Word of God. And the phrase, the Word of God which you heard from us here in verse 13, literally reads in Greek like this. It is a word heard from us out of God. A word heard from us out of God. In other words, Paul's saying that this is objective truth. It came from us, but it didn't really come from us. It came directly out of the mouth of God Himself. Remember the context. We've talked about this quite a bit. But in the ancient Greco-Roman world, and this is where Thessalonica was situated, there were hucksters all over the place, right? There were 
people who were coming in and out of the towns, traveling from village to village. They were, they were sort of peddling their tales and their philosophies. Their intent was to just kind of go around and, 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 and sort of trick people, basically into buying into what they're selling as something really impressive so that they could get their money. They were just moving from town to town seeking a profit. This was the, the setting for which Thessalonica was situated in. And, and Paul enters into this, and remember, he's bringing them a message, the message of the Gospel. And there was an accusation being made because there was so much rhetorical garbage to sort through in these, in these towns and villages and cities. There was an accusation made against Paul that he's just like the rest. This is just another one of those hucksters coming in trying to sell us his goods. This is just another bottle of empty snake oil. And I, and I'll, and I'll highlight again, it's, it's no different today, right? In terms of when, when the Word of God is presented, when the Gospel is proclaimed, as the Christian message is, is, uh, proclaimed out into the world, it's no different today. People often have that same reaction to it. This is, this is snake oil. Uh, Andy talked about moderns and postmoderns last week. The moderns tell us, look, religion's a crutch. The, the Bible is, is, it's myth. It's fairy tales. It's ancient, you know, gobbledygook. And, and it's, it's just a crutch for those who don't have the, the, the intellectual wherewithal to actually sustain themselves in life. And then you've got the postmoderns who say, well, no, it's okay for you to believe what you believe. All, all spiritual teaching is valid insofar as it works for you. But only that far, right? Neither the modern or the postmodern mentality supports the universal objectivity of the Gospel. But Paul is very different. Paul is far more realistic than that. He knows that we can subjectively receive the message of the Gospel with confidence, receiving it as something that's objective, as infinitely superior to other rhetorical truth because of its source. Paul's saying, look, this is from God. And listen, God is ultimate truth. God is ultimate reality. So when you receive this, you received it and accepted it. Praise God for what it really is from God. And that's a bold claim, no doubt, for him to make. But he can make it as an apostle chosen by God. Look at chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, something that we covered previously. Remember he said, We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So he's saying, look, we're, we're not like those others who came and tried to just please you and sell snake oil. In fact, what we could have done is made some specific demands because we're, we're very different than the rest. We're apostles. Although he didn't make those demands. But listen to what John Piper explains what an apostle is. The, the words of an apostle, he says, when he teaches or writes as one of Jesus' apostles, is the Word of God. Again, that's a bold statement. But listen to the definition. The definition of the word apostle is one who is sent to represent another person with authority. Jesus said to His apostles in John 16, verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, 
But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So Jesus made plans that would ensure the truth of the apostolic teaching about himself in the early church was understood to be directly from the mouth of God. My spirit will share with you and what you speak will be from him. And that's what came to be written down for us in our New Testaments. This is for our rule and authority because it's authoritative. It's from God. Paul said very much the same thing to the Corinthian church. I'll put up 1 Corinthians 2 here. He says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And we see that play out, that that divine authority in action in Paul's ministry as he writes to the Corinthians about people who were claiming to have relevatory experiences. Remember that was something that was happening in the Corinthian church. You got these people who are making these prophecies and coming up with things that they were saying were authoritative. And Paul says something very interesting to them. He says, this. He says, look, my teaching is the measuring rod. If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. And then Peter comes along and he confirms this God-given authority of Paul and really the rest of the apostles by describing in his writings Paul's words as being in the same category as the Old Testament writings that they already had. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture is inspired by God, right? So here comes Peter in 2 Peter 3.15 and 16 and he says this. I'm way behind ahead of myself, sorry. Our beloved brother Paul. Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. And listen, this is what he says, as they do the other Scriptures. So by saying there, the other Scriptures, it shows that Peter puts Paul's letters in the category with God's inspired and authoritative Scripture. Now you might say, okay, so aren't you just using Scripture to sort of validate Scripture? Aren't you using Scripture to prove Scripture? Isn't that circular logic? Well, that's a fair question. But I I have a fair answer. Actually, I think I'll give you two uh, answers. The first one is this. Any claim that we make, any claim, always has to appeal up to some authority. Right? Right? So if I, if I pick up my Bible and I say, if I let go of this, it's going to fall to the ground. That's true. But why is it true? Well, I, I appeal up to the higher authority, which is gravity exists, right? And the law of gravity is that everything falls down, right, to the earth. And if I appeal to the law of gravity, then I've got to appeal even higher up there and explain where does that come from? Why does that work? And eventually, you see kind of the chain. It's got to go up ultimately. It's going to end up with 
the ultimate question of where does all this come from? Right? Everything always appeals up to a, a higher authority until you get to the highest authority which answers the ultimate question, where does all this come from? And it, it leads us to the Creator. It leads us to God. Right? So that's the point. That's sort of the point that, that Paul is making here. What truth is higher or more ultimate than the Creator and the originer, the originator of truth? You, you can't make a higher claim than to go there, and to go there is to go to God's Word. That's his, this is what He has said. This is how He has revealed. God has spoke it. Spoken it, I should say. And there is no higher appeal to truth than that. That's the first answer. The second answer is that objective truth can also be validated by subjective experience. And Paul's whole purpose in the first two chapters here of 1 Thessalonians has been to remind the Thessalonian church members what they've actually experienced. Right? So that's the second point. When we receive God's Word as truly from God, subjective hope becomes objectively certain. Look at verse 13 again, and I'll read into 14. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but at what it, what it really is. The Word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So he says this word that you've received is at work in you. And he's been going back and forth the whole time. You're reminding them of how it is at work in them. How it has been at work with them. You didn't just receive a message of self-help. You didn't just receive some fancy philosophy. What you received came to you in power. And that power was validated by the conviction of sin that it brought to you. And that was validated by the impartation of the Holy Spirit to you, which has given you unbelievably joy in the midst of suffering. And you're growing in this. And you can see the fruit of this. There's, there's a reality here of your experience that goes to show the validity of the objective truth that you've received and accepted. Andy, uh, I thought, had a great analogy last week when he was talking about uh, his 10th anniversary a few years back where he and Nat were sitting on the beach together and recounting back to each other all the things that had happened over their marriage and all the ways that they were able to give thanks to God and praise God for the things that He had led them through and accomplished in their lives. And, and he said, this is kind of what Paul's doing with the church here. He wants them to have that same looking back and seeing all of the evidence of God's truth and power in them. And that's a great thing to do. And, and what, I, what I would add to that is this, is that that, that that doesn't just give us assurance of His past faithfulness, but it also then gives us assurance in the present and for the future, doesn't it? When you can look back at that past faithfulness of God and see how every time He has accomplished His work in you, it gives you assurance to know that He's going to keep doing that. He is doing that. He'll always do that. Where does that come from? Where does that hope come from? 
Well, we know it's Christ in us, right? Christ gives us that hope. But how or where do we come to meet Christ? How do we know anything about Christ? How do we know anything about His life, His death, His resurrection, and His desire for us? His Word. Right? Everything we know about Christ is found in His Word. Every authority we can appeal to about who He is and what He's done is right here. And nowhere else, right? What would we know about Jesus apart from His revelation? Think about that. It'd be nothing, right? So it all points us back to the Word of God. Main idea again, hope then is rooted in God's Word. It's rooted in God's Word. And it becomes certain because His Word bears powerful fruit in us in the lives of those who accept it. Here's, here's the bottom line. And, and I hope this is a question that you would all answer in the affirmative. Do you want hope? Do you want hope? If you say no, I have no category for you. Really? What? We all want hope, right? If you want hope, get the Bible. Get the Word. That's the point. Hope is found and rooted in the Word. And don't just get it. Accept it. Don't just receive it, but accept it. You receive it objectively, but you receive it, you accept it, I should say, subjectively and say, I bank my life on this truth. I, I receive it. it is, is, it's encouraging to me. It's precious to me. That's what it means to accept it. This is where objective truth becomes subjective reality, right? I welcome it. I embrace it. I treasure it. And that's exactly what the Thessalonian church members had done. Notice how verse 14 is similar to chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Look at verse 14 again in chapter 2. He says, For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Now that's a lot like what he said back in chapter 1, verse 6. Look over there. He says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. I think he's repeating it. He's basically trying to drive home this same point, and that's this. You know the Word is precious to you when you treasure it more than your own comfort and safety. That The difference between just sort of receiving it and accepting it, you know you've accepted it, when it, it becomes far more precious to you than your comfort and your safety. They were being persecuted. They were being threatened for this belief. And there was real reason for them to be afraid. And yet the Word of, of God in them allowed them, the Gospel of Jesus in them allowed them not only to endure that, to endure it with joy. Which is ridiculous. Unless the Word of God is far more precious to you than your safety or your comfort. It even brings you joy in your sufferings. That is real hope. Only, only objective truth can sustain hope. Right? Only objective truth can sustain hope and make it certain. 
Again, hope becomes concrete when it's, when it's founded upon objective realities. And then that hope becomes very practical. It changes them. It, it changes them so much that they become examples to others. I think about that, that kid in Uganda who gets the scholarship, who gets the, the, um, the support, right? Even though they're living in, in, in the same circumstances as others, Think about what those others can do. Those others can always yet look to that one boy or girl who's got that, that support and know that, you know what, there is something more out there. There is something that, 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 that can be lived for here. There's an opportunity that's available. They may not yet have it themselves. But even by seeing that there's somebody who does, it can still ignite in them that desire and that hope in them to know that it's possible for me too. That's kind of what Paul's getting at here. When, when, when our lives are so changed by the hope that we have in Christ, we become examples to others that even if they don't have what we have, they ought to be able to look to us and say, there is something worth having. So how do we grow in this Word-rooted hope? How do you get more of the Word in you? Well, I think maybe we can learn something from what's called the, the regulative principle of worship. And I bring that up because it's actually something that if you pay attention to kind of how we do church here, it's something that we try to follow every Sunday in the way that we structure our worship services. In other words, what I'm saying is we want our worship services here each week to be focused around God's Word. And here's how we do that. This is what the regulative principle looks like. We read the Word, we pray the Word, we sing the Word, and we see the Word. Okay? You can do that in your own life too. How do you, how do you get more of the, the Word-based hope into your heart on a daily basis? Well, first of all, read it. Right? That's sort of the most obvious one, right? But what do I mean by read it? Well, reading it entails studying it. Memorize it. Do you ever memorize Scripture? And notice how it comes back to you often as you're going throughout your day, right? Because it's there. It's, it's sort of stuck in your head and, and it gets into your heart and it, it genuinely affects the way you live. That recall is a powerful thing. Memorizing the Word of God and that allows you to meditate on it. Sometimes when I, when I read my Bible in the morning, I, I, I feel like I have enough time to just sort of read it and that's about it. And there are other times when I feel like I have enough time to, to read it and to sit in it and to meditate on it. Can you relate to that? Some days are better than others in that regard. Do you notice the difference? Reading it is far better than not reading it. Meditating on it is far better than either. Right? Uh, so, so do that. Meditate on it. And, and memorizing it can help you do that. And then lastly, as you hear it, you are you are sort of reading the Word. You're also hearing the Word. You come here to church on a Sunday morning and, and the Word is taught or preached to you or other ways in which you can listen to that. That's all getting the Word into us, right? So we need to read the Word. Secondly, then pray the Word. And uh, I've been encouraged by, I haven't been able to go to Paul's class downstairs, but I've been able to see some of the handouts and hear from others that that's been a big part of what you guys have talked about. What a beautiful way to get the Word into us. And also, what a beautiful way to guide the way we pray, right? If we're, if we're supposed to be praying within the will of God, and you wonder, how, how do I do that? How about praying His Word back to Him? And as you're doing that, this is, I think, what, what Paul is encouraging 
excuse me, the Thessalonian church to do. Remember, the first message of our series was about how to pray for the church. Paul is praying here. He's giving thanks to God for all of this fruit that the gospel is producing in, in the people there in Thessalonica. If we do that, it, it helps us to be reminded of the power that God's Word produces in us. The power of what the Gospel does to transform us. And it, and it, it, seeks, it seeks, uh, sinks itself deeper into our soul as we're praying it back to Him and giving Him thanks for what He's done. You can also sing the Word. That's why we sing at church. It's kind of weird, I know. Like You don't normally sing with people throughout the week. But we do that here. Why? The idea is that we're singing to each other. We're encouraging one another the truths of the Gospel. The truths of God's Word. Do, do, you ever, do you ever have those things recalled to you throughout the week? I hope, you, I hope you can do that. It's a wonderful thing to do, right? You're midweek. You're, you're, you're wrestling with hope. You're feeling in the, the thick of life and, and things are pressing on you and you can stop and just... And just recall, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, right? We sing the Word. And we can also see the Word. And by see the Word, we're talking about communion. We're talking about baptism. The ordinances that God has given to the church. There are important ways for us to be reminded of the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ as we see in tactile ways by, by taking bread and drinking the wine and, and seeing baptism that the Word of God is active in His people. Now, can you do that on a, on a Wednesday by yourself? No. Right? So part of the encouragement there is that that's part of what we do in community. It requires community. So part of getting the Word deeper into us is to be a part of the community of faith as we gather together to read it, to pray it, to sing it, and to see it. So bottom line, hope. We all want hope. Where's our hope found? It's found in Christ. How do we find Christ? We have to, have to come under His Word. This is how He makes Himself known. Now there is a, there's a negative aspect to what Paul says here, and it's the third and final point, and it's this. There is no hope for those who subjectively reject what is objectively true. There's no hope when you subjectively reject what is objectively true. Look again at verse 14-16. through 16. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins but wrath has come upon them at last. There's no hope for those who subjectively reject what is objectively true. The way this reads here, especially in the ESV translation which we're using, can come off sounding very anti-Jewish. right? But that's, that's not the point. Here's the point. The point is, for those who reject 
the Word of God as delivered by the apostles, there is no hope. That's the point. In the context that Paul was writing to in Thessalonica, and if you look at his whole ministry, it was predominantly the unbelieving Jews, or as in Acts 17, which talks about his time in Thessalonica, they're called the jealous Jews. It was predominantly them who were most vocal against him and the ministry of the gospel. It was predominantly them who were who were most apt to be even physically threatening to the church. All right, that's why he's talking about the Jews here. But what he says here is true for anyone who rejects the word. It's true for anyone who hears the word and rejects it. So here's what I want us to understand about objectivity and subjectivity. All right? Here's the key thing that we have to understand. The word of man does not become the word of God because it's accepted as the word of God. We accept it because it is the word of God. Right? It doesn't just become the word of God because we will, will ascribe to it that kind of worth. No, it just is the word of God. We accept it because it is. The apostolic word really is God's word objectively apart from our subjective attitude towards it. Paul preached it objectively. And so if you're hearing the Word, as they were hearing the Word, simply know this, it's the Word of God whether you accept it or not. It's the Word of God whether you accept it or not. It is objective. That's one of the key differences between an orthodox view of Scripture and a postmodern view of Scripture, which would say that the Word of man only becomes the Word of God if you Receive it as such. But it's not objectively anything until you ascribe that kind of worth to it. And again, that's not what Paul's saying here in verse 13. I'm beating a dead horse here because I think this is such an important point. Our accepting it does not make it the Word of God. We accept it because it is the Word of God. And if we don't, if we don't, we're without hope, he's saying. Because we're guilty of filling up the measure of our sins. Now what does that mean? Well, if you look at what he's saying about them, it's really the polar opposite of what he's been saying about the Thessalonian believers so far. The fruit that the Jews here are exhibiting, the fruit of disbelief and rejection, is the opposite of receiving and accepting. They're receiving and rejecting. Unbelievers don't receive God's messengers, they throw them out. Unbelievers uh, aren't godly examples to others, they're hindrances to others in hearing the message of the Gospel. They're, They're hindrances to the salvation of other people. Paul says here, they displease God. And therefore, God will judge them. When you fill up the measure of your sin, it means you're heaping God's judgment upon yourself. And the wrath of God against sin will not only come upon you, but there's a very real sense in which the way Paul's writing here, he's saying it already has. It already has. Because the, 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 the language here is in the aorist tense, which, which is sort of meaning like, look, the, the damnation of the unbeliever has already been settled. It's already been settled. There's no hope for you 
when you reject the Word of God. That's sobering. Your fate has already been sealed is what he's saying. So the plea here, the key application for anyone who would say, I've heard it but reject it, is this. Don't do that. Don't reject the Word. Don't mess with the Word. Don't, don't alter the Word. Don't pick and choose from the Word. All of it is from God's own mouth. And all of it must be accepted, believed, obeyed, treasured, in order to have the hope of salvation. So as I say that, I'll say as the Scriptures do, let the reader understand. And I pray that none of you, none of you would be found in that sad state on the last day where you would stand before a holy God and know, I've rejected Him. But I don't want to end on a sad note. Let me, we're talking about hope, right? Let's talk about hope. Let's remember the hope that the Gospel brings to us. And here's the good news that's available to anyone, even as you might be currently rejecting the Word of God. There's still good news available to you while it's not too late. And here's the good news. Everything Paul is saying here about the Jews was once true of himself. It was once true of himself. He says in Philippians chapter 3, if anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, Get this, a persecutor of the church. This is who Paul was. Paul was one who shouted, crucify him. Paul was one who killed and imprisoned Christians so that the gospel would not be shared. Paul rejected the testimony of Jesus' apostles until, until God's gracious intervention when Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus and opened his eyes. Ironically, by closing his eyes. But he opened his eyes to the truth of God's Word and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul had the same experience that he's talking about with the Thessalonians. The Gospel came to him in power. It came to him in power and brought about conviction of his sin. He dropped down to the, to the ground as Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, that was what his, his uh, Jewish name was, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus. And Paul, his immediate reaction was repentance. What shall I do? And by the grace of God, through the repentance and the faith of Paul, God took all this sin, all this wrath stored up for His rejection and persecution and kicking against the goads, and He nailed it to the cross of Christ. And He forgave him his sin. And He washed him clean. He made him new. And He set him on a new course and said, 
you're going to live for me. You're going to be my messenger to the Gentiles. That's the grace of God. That's the hope of Christ. And it's available to us only through the Gospel. Only in His Word. And now Paul can say of his former way of life, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You know what that is? That's hope. That's hope. What you hope for shapes what you live for. So do you accept the Word of God for what it really is? I pray that you do. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word in which You reveal to us everything about Yourself, everything we need to know for life and godliness. In Your Word, we can look and see that, Lord, You sent Your Son, the Word made flesh, to come and die for our sins. That like Paul, our sins have been nailed to the cross. We've been forgiven. We've been set free. And that that hope is available to all who, upon hearing Your Word, not just receive it, but accept it. Place their trust in Christ. Put their faith in Him. So Father, I want to pray for us this morning that, that You would remind us, Lord, of who we are in Christ and remind us that Your Word is the foundation of our hope. So encourage us as Your people, Lord, to be people of the Word, to, to read the Word, to sing the Word, to pray the Word, to see the Word, to, to digest it so that our hope doesn't falter. May we be able to give thanks regularly that, that yes, indeed, we've not just received it, but we've accepted it and treasure it. And Lord, I do pray for those who may be here today and certainly for those around us in our community who don't know You because they've rejected Your Word. Father, would You spare them from the, the righteous wrath reserved for the unbeliever? Would You use us as, as examples to them that they might see hope in us that we might be able to share with them the truth, the, uh, the greatest objective truth is that there is a God who made us. And though we reject Him, He has faithfully rescued us through His Son. May we declare that with our lives and with our words that, Lord, many would come and receive the mercy available and the hope that we have through the cross of Christ. We thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You have not left us without Your presence and witness. Let us not take it for granted. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.